All right, good evening. Welcome to lesson 16 of our membership course. Um, lesson 16, Honoring God's Gift to My Neighbors, uh, Catechism Questions number 78 through 90. We'll be looking at particularly the 7th Commandment and the 8th Commandment. Um, you see that at the top of your page, here on page 104 in the, um, in the workbook. Page 104 in your workbook, and we will be starting in 1 Kings chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 19. King Ahab steals Naboth's vineyard. So 1 Kings, you're thinking Old Testament, um, and this is part of the, the history of God's people. So 1 Kings 19, actually 1 Kings 21, sorry. Make that a little bit bigger. There we go. Uh, reads like this, verses 1 through 19. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. So Ahab, <clears throat> excuse me. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, "I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers." He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, "Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat?" He answered her, "Because I said to <laughs> got to get the the whiny Ahab voice in here. Because I said to Naboth, right." Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Ahab is this, uh, he's not a very strong leader. He's not a very biblical leader, I'll say that. Uh, verse 7, Jezebel, his wife, said, is that how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up, I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders of the nobles and the nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and the nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So, so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell to you. He is no longer alive, but dead. 
When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, This is what the Lord says, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says, In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Alright, pretty intense. Straight out of a soap opera or Law and Order. Um, and this is supposed to be God's chosen people. But you might recall that this is part of the, the ten northern tribes. When there's a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the ten northern tribes are called the kingdom of Israel, and they never had a godly king. And Ahab is one of the worst of the ungodly kings. So number one, um, the summary point there on page 104 in your workbook, King Ahab was one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. He took what he wanted by force. Number one, Ahab, king of Israel, noticed that a man named Naboth, who lived nearby, had a nice vineyard. Ahab wanted it for a vegetable garden, so he talked to Naboth about purchasing it. What did King Ahab offer for it? Looking at verse 2, or thinking back, um, verse 2, here we are. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden. It's close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you either A, a better vineyard, or B, I will pay you whatever it is worth. Sounds like a fair deal, but it wasn't King Ahab's. <laughs> it was Naboth's vineyard. So Ahab offered to buy it or to give a better vineyard in exchange for it. Why did Naboth turn down the king's offer from uh, your recollection? I think we read through that. Um, your recollection, verse 3, well, he got it from his part of his family. Um, and there's, there's an element of Jewish law here as well, where the land belongs in the family. And the land is supposed to be returned to the family if it had been taken um, or foreclosed upon. Um, every 50 years, the land was supposed to be returned to the one who was foreclosed upon, or at least their family. And so Naboth is saying, yes, he has a sentimental attachment to this land, um, and, it's, and it's where he lives, it's his home, um, but it's also in line with the word of God, that God didn't want his people to be selling their land willy-nilly, um, at least you know those people of Israel there in that country, because God had said that your family is going to live in that specific place. Number three, Queen Jezebel schemed to get the vineyard for her husband. Why do you think she and Ahab not only stole the vineyard, but killed Naboth in the process? Well, they stole the vineyard, but they, they killed him first. Um, and they wanted to get rid of Naboth so that they could take the vineyard without interference. They didn't want any sort of interference um, or any sort of legal claim coming back against them. They wanted to, you know, have the appearance that this is an okay thing for them to do. That, well, that, that criminal... You know, he died this death and uh, on, the, on the basis of the lies of those men who had opposed him. And so everybody thinks that Naboth is a, a criminal. And King Ahab reluctantly has to go down and take possession of this vineyard so that it is taken care of. And he wants to serve as custodian for it until the time when Naboth's family can, can have it again. And so by having Naboth killed in that fashion... 
he's out of the way. There's no legal claim. And Ahab looks like the good guy, where he's just doing what is right and legal and, and his responsibility as a king. Not really. Number four, how did Ahab's sinful desire for something that we call coveting, which we will cover in the next lesson, lead him and Jezebel to further sins? Well, his desire for the vineyard led to murder and stealing. Uh, coveting that we talk about in lesson 17, which is the next lesson, is wanting something in particular that belongs to someone else. So it's not just, I want a, I want a red car or I want a Mustang. Um, I see my neighbor drive his Mustang or her Dodge Challenger or whatever it is uh, by every day and I want that car. And wouldn't it be nice if I could have that car and I just picture myself in that car or fill in the blank. When we talk about the ninth and 10th commandments, um, God particularly highlights his, you know, his spouse, um, the, the employees that they have, the, the house that they have, um, all the things that we typically see and especially in a suburban setting. Um, all the things that we typically attribute as demonstrating value or worth or success. All right, so Ahab's sinful desire for that is coveting someone, something that belonged to somebody else led him to murder and theft, as well as murder that was predicated on false premises, um, lying and destroying this man's reputation, not just in his life, but also even after he's dead, everybody thinks that he was the criminal. Number five, I guess we got about ahead of that a little bit. Jezebel also broke the eighth commandment, which we'll cover below in more detail, by discrediting Naboth and ruining his reputation. Why would she do that rather than just killing him? I talked about this already. So that the people would think that Naboth deserved to die and that she wouldn't be accused of murder. So that she comes out smelling like a rose too. Um, that she is the one who has such such honor for the God of the people of Israel. You know, Jezebel is actually from Sidon. She is um, the princess of a foreign, foreign nation who worshiped a plethora of false gods. And she ends up marrying Ahab uh, for political reasons. And she does a lot to lead him astray and to promote idolatry within the nation of Israel. But here she can, she can make it look like she has concern for the true God and she has concern for the people. And she keeps up this, this veneer, this appearance of, um, you know, just basically plain politics. Well, look at what she did. She, she, she heard about this and she didn't want to let it stand. Uh, number six, what was God's response through the prophet Elijah to this incident? Verse 19, that was at the end of what we read. Um, scrolling down here we are. This is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. <laughs> and you notice Ahab's response isn't, isn't I have sinned. Um, Ahab's response is, oh, Elijah, you are the troublemaker. You are the troubler of Israel. You are my enemy. You never leave me alone, and you never let me do whatever it is I want to do. Uh, but pretty harsh judgment there from God, and, and it's going to come true. Ahab would die, and it's not just, it would be a shameful death, not just um, he's going to die heroically, but that it's going to be, it's going to be pretty intense. Um, number seven, top of page 105 in your workbook, read 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8. What should our attitude be toward the things that we have? On your screen, there we are. Godliness with contentment is great gain. 
for we brought nothing into the world, and we certainly cannot take anything out. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be satisfied. So what should our attitude be toward the things we have? Well, we remember that everything we have really belongs to God. So we should be content. Um, and just because God has distributed or given different or perhaps more or perhaps less to somebody else doesn't mean in any way that he has shortchanged you. He still provides for you. Even as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, that we pray, God, you know, continue to provide for me each day. Don't give me so much that I, that I forget about you. Don't give me so little that I despair, but give me enough for today. Our key term there at the top of 105 um, in the box, contentment, is being satisfied with what God has given and not always wanting more. Um, because, and frankly, our, our sinful flesh loves the idea of chasing more, um, loves the idea of, of excess, loves the idea of leisure and pleasure and, and an accumulation of things, because that is something visible. That is a tangible measure in our eyes of success or of safety or of security or of well-being. Fill in the blank. Our sinful nature and our sinful flesh, that is, loves it. This attitude of contentment is an attitude that says, even though I don't necessarily see the success now, I know what my Lord has said. I know that my God has promised everything and that my God will continue to provide for me. So it's really a contrast between that pull of the sinful flesh and, and the new life of faith. Number eight. Martin Luther's explanation to the seventh commandment helped us to understand how we should view the things that others have. When we look at the gifts that God has given to other people, we want him, we want to, quote, help him to improve and protect his property and means of income. Read Colossians 3, verses 22 and 23, as a worker or as an employee, how can we do that? Slaves, obey your human masters in everything, not just when they are watching you, like people pleasers, but with a sincere heart, out of respect for the Lord. Whatever you do, keep working at it with all your heart, as for the Lord and not for people. So in this, this culture uh, at Colossae, where Paul is writing to, um, that term slave and slavery has a very strong connotation here in our American English, and that wasn't the, the arrangement for the majority of the slaves in the Greco-Roman world. There were slaves that were taken as captives from the opposing enemy in battle, um, and then they were enslaved, and, and they would be stuck doing the hard work. Um, but then there were also a category of slaves who would basically sign a contract for a period of years, um, and, and then they would work for their, their patron or whoever it is was taking care of them, and, um, and that person might pay off their debt, or that person would agree to provide for them. And then the slave would be counted as a member of the household. And so this household would be 30, 40, 50 people, including the immediate family, maybe the grandparents, maybe some aunts and uncles, um, the slaves and, and their spouses and their children. That, that would be what would make up the household. And in our, in our terminology, you know, it wasn't just like a single family home living in your, you know, 1500 square foot ranch or your little starter home or whatever, whatever it happens to be. Um, it would be the equivalent of what we think of when you think of like a compound or a, or a farm where you've got numerous or a ranch 
where you've got numerous buildings or maybe one large building and then fields around it, that sort of a thing. So when he says slaves here in Colossians 3, the people he is addressing with that term slaves and his guidance for them, obey your human masters in everything um, with a sincere heart out of respect for the Lord and keep working at it with all your heart as for the Lord and not for people. Contextually, he says the word slaves, but in our culture, um, what he says also applies to people who are employees, um, people who punch the clock or people who work on salary or whatever the, or on commission, whatever the case may be. Um, that is the, the umbrella term that the New Testament would fit for you and for me. Not that you and I are, are slaves in the same sense, but the terminology fits. That was a long and roundabout way to say, as a worker, how do we help somebody to improve and protect his property means of income? Well, we want to work diligently at our jobs so that the employer prospers. Um, and, and thankfully, in, in our economic climate, um, there is some competition for workers and, so, and some laws to help, help guard and keep workers safe. Um, and so you, you work hard so that your employer succeeds, and hopefully that employer returns some of the investment to you, where he or she or the employer um, helps to, you know, maybe gives you a little bit more benefits or improves the benefits, or you've got, you know, some job stability. Um, and, and if it's a place where the employer isn't acting in that forthright and, um, yeah, forthright way that is just and fair, then thankfully, at least in our current economic climate, there seems to be the ability to change to a different job and find a different employer um, because there is some competition in the marketplace for those who are willing to work and put in a good day's work. Number nine, read Proverbs 11, verse 25, and 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24. In general, how can we help people with the gifts that they have been given? This is in our auxiliary passages. Here on the screen, Proverbs 11.25, a person who spreads blessings will be enriched. One who gives a refreshing drink will be refreshed. And 1 Corinthians 10, let no one seek his own good, but that of others. So this is an overarching attitude that applies um, to Christians in a special and unique way. So what, how can we help people with the gifts that they've been given? We can help them keep and improve their things, and we can be generous toward them. Um, we can have the attitude toward our possessions and whatever blessings we have that these blessings are not really my own for me to own or to, to use or to use up, but they are gifts from God that he has given me to manage for his glory. Number 10. How can we use the skills and talents that God has given us for the good of God's gospel message? Read Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. And that word gospel, talking about the proclamation of forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. I'll highlight through verse 5. By the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think in a way that results in sound judgment as God distributed a measure of faith to each of you. For we have many members in one body, and not all the members have the same function. In the same way, though we are many, we are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Picking up in verse 6, 
we have different gifts according to the grace God has given to us. If the gift is prophecy, do it in complete agreement with the faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouraging, then encourage. If it is contributing, then be generous. If it is leadership, be diligent. If it is showing mercy, do it cheerfully. All right. So talking particularly how we might use our skills and talents, um, that we serve our fellow Christians with those skills and abilities, ultimately, ultimately with the purpose of sharing the gospel message with others. Um, and yeah, pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, number 11, still on page 105, read 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, and 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. How can we use the material blessings that God has given to us for the good of God's kingdom? Talking about this attitude toward all that God has given to us, our talents, our skills and abilities, our blessings, um, and having this attitude that really says, this is not mine to use for my own personal gain, but this is mine to manage to the glory of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to set something aside in keeping with whatever he gains, saving it up at home so that when I come, no collections will, be, will need to be carried out. And 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, each one should give as he has determined in his heart, not reluctantly or under pressure, for God loves a cheerful giver. We regularly and joyfully support the work of spreading the gospel through our offerings, which are given in proportion to what God has given to us. And the idea here is choosing something in your heart. And, and for this, we also have a webinar through our, through our website. Um, that's a Christian home finance course that basically takes the, the Dave Ramsey approach and breaks it down a little bit more and puts it in proper order where, um, yeah, puts it in proper order. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. You'll have to take the course yourself. But we've got books available at church free of charge. And for anybody else that would like a copy, just contact me, Pastor Hagen, P-A-S-T-O-R-H-A-G-E-N at iCloud.com. And the idea here is that properly managing the blessings that God has given to us means us directing where the money goes rather than being slaves to our desires and slaves to those who would want us to be in debt for the rest of our lives, basically. Um, and so there's this attitude of, of joyfully supporting the work and having our priorities straight where we want to demonstrate um, that, you know, the offerings that we bring are part of a demonstration that God is going to follow through with his promises, exactly as he said that he would provide for us. Um, and so I encourage you to check out that course and you can um, just contact me and, uh, and we'll go from there. I'll get you a copy of the book. Number 12, how does the seventh commandment serve as a mirror? That is the second use of the law for us. The seventh commandment, talking about theft. Um, actually, it should say, yep, the seventh commandment, okay. It shows that we have not been content with what we have and have wanted to take what is not ours. Uh, the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not take our neighbor's money or property or get it by dishonest dealing, but help him to improve and protect his property and means of income. Number 13. How did Jesus keep the seventh commandment in our place through his active obedience, where he actively obeyed God's law in our place? Well, Jesus never stole anything. He was always generous with anything and everything that he had. 
Okay. Number 14, how did Jesus solve our continued breaking of the seventh commandment through his passive obedience on our behalf? Jesus, where passive obedience, where Jesus allows himself to be killed. Uh, Jesus died to forgive us for the times we haven't been content or have wanted to steal something. And number 15, the last one on page 105. How does the seventh commandment serve as a guide, the third use of the law for us? Well, we thank God by being content with what we have and by helping others protect their property. Help them to improve and protect their property and means of income. Top of page 106, we have a nice diagram there that God is the God's gift of possessions really comes from um, the God-given ability to work, as well as gifts or inheritance or other blessings that, that God allows or sends our way. Um, and then we use those possessions to provide for the needs of our family, um, help for the needy, we pay our taxes, and we support the work of the church. And so as a result, we will want to be content and be faithful in our work. We will want to help others and be thankful to our God who has given us everything. And we want to not be wasteful. We want to you know, not rob or steal. Uh, we don't want to be greedy or dishonest or lazy. There's definitely an attitude difference between the two. All right, 2 Samuel 15 is our next section. Absalom undermines David, King David's authority. Uh, so King David, you know, like David and Goliath, and David is like, I don't know, 200, you know, about 200 years before um, Ahab, the, the guy that we just had. And uh, King David and his son Absalom. Absalom rebelled against him and tried to seize the throne, basically. And so that's the next part that we're talking about here. Um, when we especially talk about the Eighth Commandment and God's gift of a good name or a good reputation. We'll be in 2 Samuel 15, just the first, first six verses or so. And it's there on your screen. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever the, the city gate was basically the local courthouse where they would settle complaints. Um, whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for the decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom undermines King David's authority. Number 16 are our summary points there on page 106. First, Absalom was King David's son, though not God's chosen heir to the throne. And secondly, he sought to win the kingship by being the most popular person in the kingdom and by damaging his father's reputation. So number 16, how did Absalom seek to steal the hearts of the people of Israel away from God's chosen representative, his father, King David? Well, he made promises to change things if he were in charge. <laughs> Politicking 101. Um, if I were king, if I were in charge, then it wouldn't be like this. 
and he's he's blatantly misrepresenting even King David's work now. Um, he doesn't even let the people get into get into the city to go see the king before he's saying, well, the king can't see you, but if I were king, then I would make time for you. That's how much I care, and that's how good of a king I would be. Oh, if only I were king. Sounds like Lion King, right? Just can't wait to be king. Except Absalom was not in line to be king, and he was not God's chosen next king. Number 17. Absalom very subtly, subtly ruined David's reputation and good name. How did he do that? Well, he made the people think that David was a bad king, and David certainly was not. Um, but Absalom was working behind his back to, to lead the people astray, to tell lies about King David, and to be very sly and cunning. Uh, read Colossians 3, verse 9, Proverbs eleven thirteen, and 1 Timothy 5. What are some ways that we might hurt someone's reputation? Here in our supplemental, Colossians 3, verse 9. Do not lie to each other, since you have put off the old self with its practices. And Proverbs 11, verse 13. A gossip goes around betraying secrets, but a trustworthy spirit keeps a matter confidential. And 1 Timothy 5. At the same time, they also learn to be lazy as they go about from house to house. They not only learn to be lazy, but also to be gossips and busybodies, saying things that they should not say. What are some ways that we might hurt someone's reputation? Well, you tell lies about somebody, um, or you don't keep a matter to yourself. Whether somebody said, can you keep this a secret or not, if they told you, it's not your news to tell somebody else. Um, and then to gossip about them. And, and we also, yeah, that's the next slide here. Um, the definition on your page there for gossip is words that hurt someone's reputation, whether false or true. That's not really a precise definition. Gossip is telling the truth to hurt somebody. Yeah, telling the truth to hurt somebody. Slander is telling lies to hurt somebody. Um, it's really that simple. And I can even, I can even. And I think that distinction, that distinction is very helpful because gossip isn't both truth and false. Um, gossip is simply telling the truth, but it's not telling the truth in the proper light, and it's not telling the truth that is good and lovely and noble and right. Um, it's airing somebody else's dirty laundry, or it's presenting it in such a way that, oh, but did you hear? <laughs> did you hear what they said? Um, and isn't that terrible? Telling the truth without the proper attitude behind it and the proper tone and intention in front of it. Um, telling the truth about somebody still isn't right. There's, gossip is very easy. And, I, and this, this definition, this sounds like Pastor Hagen is grinding another axe, but it's true because this definition leaves a lot of wiggle room. Gossip is telling the truth about somebody, but um, not doing it in a way that is loving or builds them up. Slander is telling lies about somebody and doing it in a way that obviously tears them down. Um, slander, yeah, 
plain and simple. The, the bottom line is that if we are doing anything that hurts somebody else's reputation, um, then that's not right. Okay. Luke, uh, page 107. Luke 7, verses 1 through 5. How did the Jewish people build up the centurion's reputation before Jesus? After Jesus had finished saying all these things to the people who were listening, he went into Capernaum. A centurion's servant who was valuable to him was sick and about to die. Scroll over and we'll scroll up. Was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some elders of the Jews to Jesus, asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him, because he loves our nation, and he built our synagogue for us. So number 19. The Jewish people spoke well of him and told about the good things that the centurion had done. Easy. Number 20, what are some ways that we might improve somebody's reputation? You think of this yourself. Um, but by saying good things about them and defending them to others. That if you know somebody's bad news, it's not for you to share. If you know somebody's dirty laundry, it's not for you to air, right? It even rhymes. Number 21, why is it important for somebody to have a good reputation? Well, a couple of different reasons. Um, it will influence others either to trust or not trust that person. Um, and once lost, it is difficult to get back. I mean, if you if you lose a lot of money in a in a poor financial decision, um, money is like the ultimate renewable resource. You can you know take up another job or or do something, and you could you can always make more money. Um, but your reputation, once it's lost, or once you especially if it's not true, <laughs> if somebody tries to destroy your reputation um, and tell lies about you and tear you down or even gossip about you where maybe something was true and it was the worst moment of your life and then somebody is airing that for everybody else to say, oh, isn't that terrible? And I've never had a moment like that in my life. It's very important to guard each other's reputations. Number 22, why is a good reputation important for us who are to tell others about Jesus? Well, that's easy. We want people to trust what we tell them. We want the opportunity to speak with them. And, um, and even this, this happens, this happens pastorally, you know, if somebody hears that I'm a pastor, um, there have been a lot of pastors and a lot of other church workers who have not been worthy of the trust that they have been given. They have abused their positions of leadership and hurt a lot of people in the process. And, um, and, and sometimes people react that way. Oh, you're a pastor. I want to make sure that my kids are standing a little bit closer to me, um, because you're not trustworthy because others have abused the trust that was placed in them. Number 23. Martin Luther said that we should take others' words and actions in the kindest possible way. What does that mean? Good question. 
um, you assume the best. And if it's sounding like it's the worst, um, and there's no way you can put a good spin on it, then keep it to yourself. And I mean, obviously, if there's if it's a it's a matter of personal safety or um, especially the safety of a child or something like that, then speak up. But the truth will come out, and uh, and there is a time and a place to to share that truth. But the the issue with gossip, like this is this is the other aspect that it's not wrong to tell the truth, but most of the time gossip just goes back and forth between people who are can equally do nothing about it. You know, they're just sitting over coffee and, and talking with one another. If there's something that's actually a problem, then you need to take it to somebody higher, somebody with authority, whether it's the police or a maybe a doctor or the principal of the school or administrator um, or the pastor, somebody who has been given the authority and the responsibility to deal with it. Because taking that, that true event or that true circumstance to somebody in authority demonstrates a proper care and concern for that person's reputation as well as for the effect that that person could have on someone, somebody else and the pain and the hurt that they could cause. And so gossip especially is telling the truth back and forth. Um, the proper use of, of dealing with something, especially bad news that we hear, is to take it to somebody higher somebody who has been given an element of authority so that it can be dealt with properly. And if we're not doing that, then okay, <laughs> then maybe talk with your pastor because it should be done and we need to get over that, that sense of, well, I don't want to rock the boat. I just want to be nice. Um, if you go to our podcast, I had a podcast, uh, I had a sermon about that. That'll be right around 1140, episode 1140 on our podcast um, on the Raised with Jesus Daily, RWJ Daily, Raised with Jesus podcast. Because this is this is something that our culture and our society gets wrong very easily and a lot of people end up getting hurt in the process because we would tell the truth back and forth we would even spin the truth and make a little white lie and then it's the game of telephone and it gets worse and worse and the gossip evolves into slander straight up slander um rather than and no nobody is helped the reputation is destroyed and maybe somebody else still gets hurt even more rather than if we know about something that is true then we take it to somebody who can do something about it and we tell the truth to them and we say well please do your due diligence um what in whatever your vocation occupation may be but here is my concern and then that's it <laughs> Number 24, how does the Eighth Commandment serve as a mirror in the second use of the law for us? Well, it shows how often we have hurt people's reputations by what we say or don't say, and how often we do not take people's words and actions in the kindest possible way, the best possible way. Number 25, how did Jesus keep the Eighth Commandment in our place through his active obedience? Well, he always looked out for people's reputations and he protected them. He defended them. He spoke up on their behalf. Um, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. When it's obvious that that woman in, what is that, John 8, John 7, John 8, that that woman had been caught in adultery. But Jesus speaks up and says, well, what's the real issue here? Number 26, how did Jesus solve our continued breaking of the Eighth Commandment through his passive obedience on our behalf? Well, his death and resurrection assures us that our sins of hurting people's reputations 
have been forgiven. Number 27, how does the Eighth Commandment serve as a guide, third use of the law for us? We thank God for his forgiveness by protecting other people's reputations. And that's, you know, refraining from gossip and cutting it off and saying, well, have you spoken to that person about it? Or did they tell you this in confidence? Um, is this just something that you're trying to connect the dots and put the story together? And why are you telling me this? If you're really concerned, you should take it to somebody in authority, or you should take it to take it to your pastor, take it to the principal, take it to the superintendent, contact your legislator, whatever the case may be. But don't go around blabbing about something like that, because all you're doing is making life more difficult for that person, tearing them down, re destroying their reputation. Yeah. All right. Um, page 108. God's gift of a good name means that we want to defend others and speak well of others. We speak up for those who can't speak for themselves and take words and actions in the kindest possible way. God's gift of a good name means we also refrain from lying, betraying, giving anyone a bad name. We refrain from gossip or speaking hurtful words. And the result is that others hopefully respect and trust us. But you're not in control of that because there's no defense. There's no way to defend oneself against somebody who wants to slander your name. <laughs> that's the other that's the other aspect here if somebody wants to tear you down by telling lies about you there's no way that you can prevent that so it's like well god knows the truth that's the bottom line god gave first of all god gave the gift of a good name god gave in his law the protection for that good name and if somebody is transgressing god god's law sinning against god and against me by destroying my reputation unfairly well, they will have to answer for that. But as for me, as a Christian, you and I as Christians, we still need to conduct ourselves in a way that is holy and honorable and that is above reproach. <laughs> All right. Obviously, again, one of those topics that we could t spend a lot of time on um, in, in Bible class, and we'll probably spend some time on that in Bible class um, some of these Sundays as well, because this is very pertinent, pertinent stuff. All right, our connection questions... Number A, <laughs> how might a personal budget or a family and budget encourage us toward contentment? If you don't have one, um, and even if you do, um, contact me and I'll get you that workbook so you can work through that, that home finance webinar. I have heard nothing but glowing reviews um, and from everybody who has gone through it, and I encourage you to do the same. Um, so if we give and spend within our means, we will appreciate what we have and not drown ourselves in debt, continually striving after what we cannot afford because we are not content. And B, how might striving to take other people's words and actions in the kindest possible way avoid a lot of heartache and problem in our personal relationships? Well, we're not creating problems where they don't exist. If we continually assume the best, we'll never be upset about something that we are wrong to be upset with, upset about. We're not creating problems where they don't exist, and this goes hand in hand with um, with that sermon. I'll link it in the in the in the notes, in the show notes on YouTube, and also in the podcast notes um, if you're listening to the podcast. Uh, the sermon where we talked about the use of the keys that was in our catechism sermon series in summer of 2021. Um, where we talk about the use of the keys and basically that proclamation of of God's law of non-forgiveness and the proclamation of God's gospel of forgiveness and that very often 
we fall prey to the idea that we just don't rock the boat and if we're just nice and Christians are supposed to be nice and if we just follow all the social convention about being nice then um, then it's not a problem well that's false and that's silly so make sure to check out the show notes for for that sermon please um, that was one of the one of the sermons were like top five sermons for the the comments that I've received afterward from people who really appreciated it or it, it have really helped them to see things in a more biblical way so wrapping up, homework in the black box at the bottom of page 108. Um, you've got pages 91 through 102 in Luther's Catechism. That's the review. Um, we talked about the terms contentment and gossip. I would add the term slander there. That gossip is telling the truth about somebody. Slander is telling a lie about somebody. Um, and then pages 103 to 108 is the new section of Luther's Catechism. Again, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or improvements, please contact me, Pastor Hagen, at iCloud.com or 419-262-8280. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to the RWJ Daily Raised with Jesus podcast, and you can hear all the recordings of this class at the RWJ Membership podcast. Um, and finally, and I'll add this right at the bottom. There we are. Check out the show notes for the sermon link about the keys and nice. That's about the, the best, most you know, straightforward way that I can put it or summarize it. Um, check out the show notes. It's below if you're listening or watching on YouTube or it is um, in podcast notes in your podcast app. Thanks so much for joining us. God bless your day.